Hello all and the warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, North Wales's premier one man and his very, very lazy cat true crime show in which I scour out the darkest deeds, the ones that tend to be obscure, unfamiliar or long forgotten from all across the UK and Ireland to bring them to you for your listening. The I being myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, Keeping me doing what I do with you guys, the wonderful enthusiasts that drive the show forward. And I know I say this all the time, but I also mean it all the time as well. It's as wonderful as it always is having you lot joining me here today for the episode, which I thank you very kindly for doing so. And it goes without saying, but I do hope that as you have done, that it's an episode that finds all of you and yours all good, all safe and all well. So we're at part four of my thriller arc this time around, and we shall be beavering towards it very shortly. But by way of an explanation, it is a couple of days later than I'd planned it in coming out. Sorry for those boring night shifts, John. But against busy times, you've got to do the best job that you can, or not at all, I believe. So for the sake of waiting a couple of days until I'm happy that it's the best that I can possibly do, because my name goes against it after all, then that's what I'll always do. So now this part is finished and ready for your listening, I want to say pleasures, but it always sounds a bit wrong when discussing things such as these, but I'm sure you know what I mean. Then in the next couple of days, I shall be writing and recording the latest Patreon episode that will be out at the start of August. On that note, I'd like to thank both my returning and new Patreon supporters, with shoutouts this time around going out to new friends Angela May, Ian Ross, Noemi Feebles Garrido, Katerina Sigaris, SM, Yordis Aradotir, and Siempe, who has opted to annually support the show. And I hope that I haven't mispronounced anybody's name there. Apologies if I have. Thank you so much, folks. It's ace of you to support the show like that it is, and each of you rule. Now, if you too want to join in with the likes of these guys and becoming a Patreon supporter, then it's dead easy and dead quick to do so. You can just head over to the Patreon site and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast there, but not forgetting the podcast suffix when you look for it, or it won't jump out at you. Or, there is a link each and every time within the episode show notes that will bypass all of that and it will take you right to it. Quicker than wannabe Bond villain Jeff Bezos, because he's just unbelievably out of this earth, isn't he? Quicker than he makes money, you can be in there as a supporter kicking back and hearing unreleased bonus tales from the enthusiasts, such as Obsession by the Sea, To Kill and Kill Again, Murdering Lincoln, or The Cannibal and the Cowboy, to name just some of the full series worth of tales that can be there waiting for you. You might even want some show merch for yourselves, and if so, then I shall see what I can do about that. I'm sure that something can be arranged. To remind you guys also that at the time of this airing, there are just nine weeks remaining until all sorts of figures from the world of true crime, your podcast hosts, authors, guest speakers, and even Denise Welch, calm your jets everyone, descend on the Leonardo Hotel in London St. Paul's for CrimeCon 2021, which there are still some tickets available for. Now what a weekend this one promises to be. I know it's going to be a busy one to say the least, but it's going to be a fab one also. There's a whole interesting and interactive weekend planned for you guys to enjoy. And the best part? 
Well, certainly the part I'm most excited about is that myself and several of the other show hosts that you know and love will be there for the whole weekend taking over a great part of the floor on Podcast Row. And we can't wait to meet you guys to say hi and put the world to rights with. From established international shows such as Crimepedia and Generation Y to homegrown favourites such as UK True Crime, They Walk Among Us and Murder Mile, the list goes on, it really, really does. We shall all be there in attendance, and none of us bite either. Now a link to the CrimeCon website can be found in the episode show notes for you to get your tickets. But what's ace is that the organisers of CrimeCon have very kindly gifted you guys the opportunity that if you book your tickets and use the unique code ENTHUSIAST whilst you're doing so when you come to check out, then you're getting a 10% discount off the total cost of them. So there's more money for you to fund my bar bill for the evening. No, I'm just joshing with you, I really am. Plus, if you let me know that you've booked using the code, then I shall make sure that there's a massive swag bag waiting for you at the event. I, and I know that I speak for several of the other show hosts too when I say this, we can't wait to meet you all. We really can't. But before CrimeCon, before Patreon, and anything else that ends in on, we've got a story arc to continue with. So like describing your morning constitutional, Let's crack on. For the first three parts of the complex tale that makes up Thriller then, we've heard so far how the horrific exploits of two individuals that are still nameless, we shall just refer to them as taller and shorter for now, a series of rapes in North London from the early 1980s onwards, escalated in frequency and savagery before in late 1985 they crossed the line from rapists to murderers. They first took the life of 19-year-old Alison Day, who was abducted, raped and strangled as she made her way to meet her boyfriend, and then, almost four months later, managed to sink to a further depth of depravity, if you can believe this, when the next target was a 15-year-old schoolgirl named Marcia Tamboza, who, while cycling to buy sweets just a mile from her home, was intercepted, raped and then strangled, her body even being set on fire in an act of further defilement. By shortly after this murder, senior officers heading up each of the separate inquiries had conferred, and due to the similarities between each of the murders, and paralleling factors and evidence in the rape cases, were convinced that each of the crimes was the work of the same individual, believing that one of the rapists had branched out on his own, and had now become a sex killer, rather than a mere sex attacker. It was to lead to Operation Trinity, the biggest multi-force inquiry since the hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper, and as hundreds of officers searched for that one vital clue that may lead to a breakthrough and the identity of the individual, it was a very real race against the clock, knowing that this killer was out there and could strike again at any moment. But they did have a very nagging, very worrying suspicion that he already possibly had as the factors of a missing persons case, not too far away and only a month after Marcia's murder, suggested this. So, were they right? The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including that of a sexual nature and depictions of injury detail, that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use your discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for part four of the Thriller arc, an episode that I've entitled 
the lost bride. For the tale that makes up this segment of the Ark, we move now to some 50 miles north of West Horsley, the scene of Marcia Tambosa's murder, to the affluent village of Brookmans Park in the home county of Hertfordshire. Points of note about Brookmans Park include that when it was completed in October 1929, it became the location of the first purpose-built twin transmitter station in the world capable of broadcasting two radio programmes simultaneously and which also played a part in the early development of television broadcasting when on the 30th of March 1930, experimental television tests were made there using 30-line pictures, constituting the first public transmission of simultaneous sound and vision in Great Britain. It still stands today, and locals still moan about it because it sometimes interferes with their TV signals, it causes automatic garage doors to open of their own accord, and it even reportedly makes things such as toasters and radiators play music. Yeah, I know, go figure. Local legend also reportedly has it that the girl who was the inspiration for the nursery rhyme, Little Miss Muffet, was from Brookmans Park, and notable people it can claim there include everything but the girl singer, Tracy Thorne, yeah, I couldn't think of a song by them either until a quick YouTube check revealed their biggest hit to be Missing, which I'm sure you'd know if you heard it. It was a massive song. And Michael Perham, who in 2009 became the then youngest person to sail single-handedly around the world, although this record has since been surpassed. Now, of course, I haven't been down there. I don't even have enough time to find my arse, it seems of late so I couldn't tell you what it's like in all its colour. But Jess Carter, the host of the Outlines podcast, has been there, as she's done for the episodes concerning Alison and March's tragic stories, as you've heard. She also headed over to Brookman's Park as part of assisting with research in this episode for the show. So setting the scene once again, I'll hand you over to Jess. Brookman's Park, where Anne Locke lived, is just outside of London and relatively close to the M25 and A1M. The roads around the area are all small country lanes surrounded with hedgerows and fields. You expect the village to look picturesque, but instead the houses in the area look like the kind you would find anywhere on the outskirts of London. Some are new build, some with mock Tudor elements, and others with their tops half-plastered and the bottom that reddish-brown, new-looking, distinctive brick. The Anne Locke that Jess has just mentioned did indeed call Brookman's Park a home, at least for a couple of years anyway, but even less than that as Anne Locke. She'd begun her life in the North London borough of Barnet, where she'd been born Anne Veronica Siniuk on the 11th of June 1956. Little is available for research concerning Anne's early life, except that she was an only child who lived with her parents and grandmother, a first in Barnet, before moving in the early 1980s to Hertfordshire. Now sadly, by 1984, Anne's only surviving relative was her 86-year-old grandmother, Edna Goss, as both of her parents had by that time died. She didn't have someone else who she could turn to for comfort in what must have been such a sad couple of years for her. Her fiancé, 26-year-old Lawrence Locke, who's described through various sources as being either a butcher or a meat importer, 
a wealthy man who ran a family firm in the Brookmans Park area. The couple had met in 1982 through a shared passion for water sports and sailing and had soon become an item. They were living together alongside Edna at Number 2 Woodlands, a spacious £160,000 home at the end of a cul-de-sac in Brookmans Park by 1984 and by the following year had also become engaged to be married with their wedding booked at nearby North Hyams Church for a Saturday in April 1986. The 19th of April, the same Saturday that some 50 miles south, a young Dutch teenager named Marci Tamboza was supposed to be on a school trip back in her native Netherlands. By all accounts, Anne and Lawrence enjoyed an active life, regularly spending weekends sailing and diving across the south coast of the UK along with friends. But aside from this, weren't what you could describe as lavish. There were no mad parties, no drink or drug-fueled benders. Both were busy, professional people who were looking forward to beginning their married life together and starting a family. Lawrence, as we said, had the family business to keep him occupied, whilst Anne worked as a secretary for London Weekend Television, the former ITV network franchise holder for London and the home counties, in their headquarters at Kent House on London's South Bank. She'd worked in media ever since leaving school, obtaining first a position as a secretary at the BBC and working from the former site of the television centre in Shepherd's Bush from 1974, before a few years later moving to work at Associated Television in Elstree. By 1983, Anne had moved jobs once again, this time employed as a secretary to Jeremy Bugler, the editor of London Weekend Television's The London Programme. Her background in working in a high-pressure behind-the-scenes media role standing her in good stead and ensuring that due to this, her hard work and professionalism, she was good at her job and was well thought of in the LWT offices. Jeremy Bugler later recalled of Anne, I quote, She was very conventional, quite reserved, and above all, very proper. She was always on time, she did everything very correctly, you'd never see her in the bar, and she never flirted with anybody. She was old-fashioned, shy in fact, very predictable, very even-tempered, a solid, no-nonsense girl. She was a very good person who suffered the most dreadful misfortune. Indeed, she sadly did, as you'll come to see. Saturday the 19th of April 1986 came around, and Anne and Lawrence enjoyed a lavish Top Hat and Tails wedding at North Hyams Church before heading off on a luxurious three-week honeymoon to the Seychelles, returning home to begin their married life together on Thursday the 8th of May. As Anne was not due back in work until that following Monday, she over the weekend caught up with friends, especially her best friend, Leslie Campion, who'd been Anne's head bridesmaid and who Anne was due to return the favour and be matron of honour for at her own forthcoming wedding. The two friends had arranged to head out window shopping for a bridesmaid's dress for Anne the following weekend. On Monday the 12th of May, Anne returned to LWT to what must be as ever a busy week behind the scenes of a current affairs programme. She'd worked steadily through the week, as we've said, always in on time, but that week, whereas she'd usually driven the 20-plus miles from Brookmans Park to the South Bank, 
The couple had, just before their honeymoon, sold Anne's car, Lawrence having promised her a new one as a present for her upcoming birthday, a black Ford Fiesta that Anne had set her heart upon. But it had not yet arrived, and so consequently, Anne was having to commute into work by train. So to facilitate this, she'd borrowed a bicycle from a friend which she would use to cycle just under a mile and a half, the most direct route from home to the station at Brookmans Park, where she would then catch a British Rail overground train into London and make a series of changes on the tube before arriving in work. Now I would hate a commute such as this, I really would, because it seems such a lot of faff, it really does. I feel for people who have to, and I'm kind of glad really that I just have a nice simple four mile trip to my own workplace, which I do at times of the day when traffic is scarcest, I really do. So Anne had done this all week, and travelling and a full on week in work is bound to take it out of you somewhat, isn't it? So she would have been tired come Friday, and with this, alongside her arranged plan to go clothes shopping with Leslie on the Saturday, and the fact that she was on call that weekend as duty secretary, there were all reasons that Anne had not joined her husband in a trip away for the weekend. Lawrence had headed away that Friday evening, the 17th of May, down to Dorset to spend a weekend sailing with a couple's friends, Stephen and Carol Prentice. And as Anne had gotten home, he'd shortly afterwards set off in his Land Rover, towing his boat down to the coast. Goodbye, darling. Take care and see you soon, were the words that she'd said to him as she'd waved him off. They were to be the last words that Lawrence Locke ever heard from his wife of just four weeks. Now we've already established that Anne was a hard and conscientious worker, and part of Anne's job involved her typing out scripts to be taken to presenters for the London programme to have learned by recording of the episode midweek. And depending on the number of features within the episode, or the complexity of them, she would on occasion sometimes work over a weekend, most usually on Sundays. So just after lunchtime on that Sunday, the 18th of May, it was nothing totally out of the ordinary when she received a telephone call from the show's producer asking if she could come in and help prepare some scripts that needed to be out later that evening. Indeed, the conscientious Anne was only too happy to. Arranging to be in for around 4 to 5pm, she sometime later left the house and set off. So as we said, the first part of her journey would have been a cycle from home to Brookmans Park Station, with Anne's most likely route being out of Woodlands and onto Calder Avenue, then onto Moffat's Lane, before heading up Bluebridge Road onto Station Close and then arriving at the station. Now it's a location that Jess Carter also visited as research for the episode, which you can listen to Jess describe as follows. Brookman's Park Station itself looks relatively old-fashioned in comparison. On one side you have the village, and in all other directions are yellowed fields and scruffy hedges. It's not very well kept. Dark red brick buildings and a tall, rusty, light blue footbridge. The ticket office is shuttered with metal plates and doesn't look like it's in use anymore. There is no sign of a bike shed, but there is a cordoned-off section of the car park, which I think is where it would have recently stood. If there weren't a few cars parked and the occasional passenger, I might have thought the station had been abandoned. 
It feels, like many of those outer London stops, that it is only there to carry commuters into the city and has very little use at other times of day. Looking at videos from the time of Anne's murder, I can see that the station has changed very little since then. The station at the time was manned by a single booking office clerk until around 8pm each evening, where it was then shuttered up. That Sunday, sure enough, the on-duty British Rail operative at the ticket desk clearly recalled Anne, whom he knew by name, arriving at the window sometime just after 3.30pm and inquiring as to when the next London-bound train was, the Welling Garden City and former GN Electric line, and being told it was some 13 minutes later. He was certain it was indeed this Sunday he was recollecting, correctly remembering the white, red and blue sleeveless ski jacket that she had on that day, and thinking to himself after the train had gone about her very noticeable May suntan, the still present reminder of her recent honeymoon to the Seychelles. The train came and went on time, 3.43pm, and being on it, and heading down to help out with what she simply considered would be another routine couple of hours helping out at the office. And the platform at Brookman's Park remained deserted after that, the ticket collector going back to his Sunday newspaper, nothing else happening at the quiet station. Quiet and isolated, bordered by woods and fields. It's exactly the kind of place that would appeal to the two depraved creatures that we've met throughout the arc so far. The two men we shall for the time being still refer to as taller and shorter. In fact, Brookman's Park was a location that the taller man had gotten excited about and picked out for a new hunting ground some time before, and had spent several previous Sunday evenings checking the area out. This time, chillingly even selecting a potential target for he had noticed on a couple of these occasions the same lone woman getting off the train here late of an evening carrying a white bag and when describing her to his shorter friend told him that she would do for their next victim she would do a human life just as throwaway as a comment like that now I've spent weeks eyeball deep in research in this case, I can tell it chapter and verse already, and yet I'm still as horrified as when I first studied it years ago at the callousness of this pair when I read and write certain lines, and that, she would do, is one of them. It took Anne a good hour to get to Kent's house that afternoon, heading into London from Brookman's Park, and nine stops later, arriving at Finsbury Park Station Platform 5, from where she would take a Victoria Line train to Oxford Circus, here getting on the Bakerloo Line to Waterloo Station, and then walking on to Kent House after leaving here through the entrance to York Road. She'd put in a couple of hours' work, staying later than she'd expected to, and by the time the scripts were ready for dispatch, it was fast approaching 8.30pm. By now wanting to get home, and knowing she would have at least an hour of travel ahead of her, Anne bade farewell to the on-duty staff at Kent House, and headed out of the building, having earlier declined the offer of a lift to Waterloo Station from a colleague, instead opting to walk. These dispatch drivers and on-desk security staff were the last known people to have spoken to Anne Locke before she met her death. 
Almost 90 minutes later, Lawrence Locke himself had arrived home after his weekend sailing. Seven weeks after this, Lawrence described the moment and his subsequent actions as follows. This particular Sunday, we had just sold her car and she would normally on a Sunday have driven all the way up to LWT where she could have parked her car. But on this particular occasion, because she had no car and the new one had not yet arrived, she cycled to Brookman's Park Station. I arrived home just before 10 o'clock. Um, Nan met me on the drive and she was quite distressed as Anne hadn't come home and she hadn't phoned either. I unhitched the boat, unloaded the car and drove back down to Brookman's Park Station. I got there, had a look in the bike shed to see if her bike was there and it wasn't, it had, it had already gone. Um, I was about to leave when I saw a train coming in. I phoned work to actually ascertain that she had left and they said that she had and left quite some time earlier. I phoned a couple of friends to see if she was around there. I checked the, with the police to see if she had been involved in a road accident on her bike. I then reported her missing to the police at Hatfield. Now this is possibly a different train that he means coming in, or there is some confusion over the timings of Lawrence's return that evening. He maintained to police that he'd arrived at Brookman's Park Station, which was deserted, and knowing Anne's routine of that week, had checked the bike shed, finding Anne's bicycle missing from there. He claimed to police that he was there when a train pulled in, finding Anne wasn't on it, which he must have meant the train arriving at 10.01pm that evening, as they arrived at a minute past the hour. A subsequent appeal, which we'll get to shortly, claims that a couple called the Mastersons got off the train here at this time and were adamant that they were the sole passengers to alight the train at Brookman's Park. Now Lawrence makes no mention of anyone else getting off the train here, it is just claimed that Anne wasn't on it. Therefore, it can't be the 10.01pm train that he's referring to as pulling in, because as we shall come to hear, Anne Locke was indeed on that train, so it must have been a later one. Sources that I use for research claim that the reason for this discrepancy was nothing of a sinister nature at all, and were in fact a combination of track maintenance work that weekend affecting timings of some of the services, and Lawrence having simply miscalculated the timings of his return, which with subsequent events is perhaps understandable for the poor bloke to have done so. What can be certain is that, finding Anne's bicycle gone from the shed, Lawrence then telephoned the direct number he would usually call Anne on in work, thinking that she may even still be there, and that her bicycle had simply been stolen, but getting no reply when he did so. He had then called the LWT switchboard to ascertain if she was still there, his anxiety growing when he was told, Oh no, she left ages ago. Lawrence then tried everything he could think of. He drove down to the stop before Brookman's Park, Potter's Bar, and spoke to the on-duty staff there to see if they'd seen his wife, but to no avail, and then returned home, now telephoning several of the couple's friends to see if Anne was with one of them. When this too drew a blank, Lawrence inquired with police at Barnet, Potter's Bar and Hatfield to see if there'd been an accident that had occurred that perhaps Anne had been involved in, but after being told there wasn't, by 11pm he was back on the telephone to Hatfield Police. This time, to report his wife of less than a month as a missing person. Imagine how that must be to do, eh? Just imagine. You can't, can you? 
By 1.30am on Monday the 19th of May, a search began of the area around Brookman's Park Station, and at first light, leaning against a fence down a footpath leading southbound from the station, searchers came across a bicycle. Lent neatly against a chain-link fence, the Red Lady's five-speed Londoner-style bicycle, its rear wheels still padlocked as it had been left the previous afternoon, was some 60 to 75 yards away from where it had been placed by Anne Locke. But of Anne, there was no sign. Now the ever-intrepid Jess Carter again retraced this path for research purposes, so I'll here once again hand you over to Jess to describe. The footpath runs right the way alongside the station, but unlike the one in West Horsley, this does not look welcoming, and I don't see a single person using it. I opt to drive to the place where the path intersects with Hawkshead Lane. It's no more attractive. The remoteness of the area, coupled with the bleakness of the landscape and steep banks of the railway line where Anne's body was found, feel oppressive. I've been to Hertfordshire several times to visit murder locations, and usually my knowledge of what happened in the places feels far removed from the landscape. But this is not the case here. There is a large slab of concrete blocking the path, presumably to slow down cyclists as they approach the road. The railway fencing is tall with jagged metal spikes. I can imagine that this would be the perfect location to attack someone. By two days after her disappearance, the national press had picked the story up. Due to Anne's newlywed status, the missing bride angle was considered a guaranteed newspaper seller, the Daily Mail's Kidnap Fears for Vanished Bride headline being just one example of this. An ashen-faced, clearly exhausted Lawrence Locke himself appeared on the BBC's regional news programme London Plus on the same day, where he said, I quote, We do not have anyone else but each other, and there is nobody else in my life except her. We have formed a remarkably strong bond. It is now obvious that something terrible has befallen her, because there is absolutely no possibility of her staying away from home of her own free will. She was idyllically happy here, and she just wouldn't leave her grandmother, me, the house, or anything she would have wanted to come home. Someone or something has detained her away from her home and the things that she loves. Something is stopping her coming home because she'd come home if she could. She's been held or kept somewhere, and I am extremely concerned for her safety. Please, if you're out there, Anne, please let us know you're all right. In the two days prior to this, police had travelled on the trains hours before and after the ones Anne would most likely have caught on her journey home, speaking to regular commuters using these in an attempt to find any potential witnesses. But no one could be found who reported seeing Anne on the Sunday evening on any part of this journey. A mass search of the Brookman's Park area had been undertaken, though finding nothing except the bicycle so police could not be certain that Anne had even made it as far back as Brookman's Park that evening. The bicycle being placed there may have simply been the work of a thief who had stolen the bicycle from the shed, then abandoned it where it was found when realising that the chain and padlock 
prevented them from riding it away. Police agreed, however, that everything that they'd learned about Anne from Lawrence, from her friends and colleagues, was that she was unlikely to have fled her life of her own accord. Everything pointed against this, and as a result, they were seriously concerned for her safety. But if something had befallen her, then where had it happened? The route I described before is the most likely route Anne would have taken to and from work, as it's the most direct. But there was always the possibility that she'd taken a different route, one involving less changes of trains. For example, she could have travelled from work to Kennington Station, where she could have picked up the Northern Line train onto King's Cross, and then from here caught a British Rail direct train to Brookmans Park. And you have to think also about all the stops in between these alternate routes and Brookman's Park. If something had befallen her, it could have been at any of these stops. Perhaps she hadn't even gotten as far as Waterloo Station. For example, had she been snatched by someone with a car? Where would you even start to look? It was a mammoth task to undertake, with a vast search area stretching from the Metropolitan Police area into Hertfordshire also. And as I've mentioned before, with the possibility of different routes, plus the Mastersons claiming that they were the only ones to get off the train Anne would likely have been on, and Lawrence's own discrepancy in his timings, it added up to a target area that was vast in range, and a timescale that could not be fully ascertained. But unlike the countless other people who go missing, names that are not known, the press had jumped upon Anne's story, and the following description of her had been issued, as detailed in the 22nd of May edition of the Wellwyn and Hatfield Times. Five feet six inches tall, with shoulder-length blonde hair that is occasionally worn up, deeply suntanned and wearing a killie make sleeveless white ski jacket with red collar and navy blue backing. Underneath, she was wearing a pink woolen top covered in small West Highland Terrier dogs. She was also wearing blue jeans, grey high-tech training shoes, a small pearl necklace and single pearl earrings, and carrying a black leather handbag. By the time four days had passed since Anne's disappearance, it already generating substantial coverage in both the local and national press, it had even been mentioned as a brief appeal on the incident desk section of the May 1986 edition of Crime Watch UK although they could give scant details, except for issuing the description of the clothing Anne wore, her prospective route home, and details of the bicycle and where it was found. If you head over to the show's Instagram page, there is even a picture of this as it was discovered on there. Now this brief appeal did generate two calls that captured police interest concerning two people the police wished to trace. The first of these was a call from a woman who had reported what was described as probably a student with an earring, who on the Tuesday before Anna disappeared, the 13th, at 9am that morning had boarded a train at Potter's Bar, and before getting off the train only a stop later at Brookman's Park, had pestered the woman for a kiss. Some sources used for research claim he'd actually even kissed her on the cheek before he'd gotten off. So strange behaviour sure, but frustratingly, this was a somewhat vague sighting. No further description of the man was given, and ultimately this was to be a lead that was ruled out of the inquiry. 
But the second sighting that was reported held much more significance to police and also seemed to strengthen the already growing uncomfortable theory that the man that was being sought in Operation Trinity, a double killer and mass rapist, may have struck for a third time. On the Saturday night before Anne had disappeared, at about 11.45pm, a group of people returning to Brookman's Park Station after attending a dinner party with friends nearby had found the entrance to the platform there blocked by a bench which had been moved and positioned across the entrance in such a way that they each had to manoeuvre around it. As they did so and waited, they were then approached by a smallish man who asked them what time the last train was from there that evening and when told had waited around for a few moments and then made his way up the footbridge steps and ran off before the train had arrived. Creating a blockade across a path. Where have we heard that before? Add to this the bicycle, and of course, the railway, the ever-present railway. And you don't have to be bloody murder, she wrote, to see where police thinking was heading. Indeed, other officers leading other inquiries, such as Detective Superintendent John Hurst leading Operation Bluebell in Guildford, were so convinced that the killer of Alison Day and Marcia Tamboza had struck again with the missing Anne Locke, the officers involved in the hunt for her, by that time which was a 40-strong team of detectives, headed down to Surrey to compare details with the Bluebell team. It left them very worried indeed that Detective Superintendent Hurst was right, but despite the circumstances, without a body, this was still a missing persons inquiry. There were other sightings and occurrences from that Sunday evening that by this time had come to police tension also, two of them absolutely crucial, as was to prove much later. Firstly, two separate witnesses, a six-year-old boy named Grant Banford, who lived in the vicinity of Station Road, and a taxi driver named Tim Moon, reported hearing a brief scream and what is described as a loud bang, almost like a gunshot, coming from the direction of Brookman's Park Station just after 10pm that evening, the very time that Anne would have alighted from her train. Now the part of these accounts concerning the loud bang were later ruled out of the inquiry, although no reasoning behind this, nor any explanation for the cause of the noise were forthcoming. The short scream, however, in the light of later revelations, would prove to be very likely and very apt. At around the same time, a witness passing the location reported a red car parked on nearby Station Close that was described as being, I quote, possibly a Ford Escort or Talbot Horizon, either a saloon or hatchback model, but not an estate. Not far away from here, on the Brookman's Park footbridge and stood looking onto the road, at around the same time, another witness reported seeing a man who was described as follows. A white male aged about 28 to 30 years old, having a long face and prominent chin, mousy coloured collar length hair which was straight at the sides and spiky on top, wearing an army style jacket with no hood. In a later episode I shall refer back to these descriptions, just to see what you guys think. There's also a photograph that will go onto the show's Instagram page then, that I think from this would be good as a comparison for this description of the male in particular. But I'm jumping the gun somewhat there, 
as I've said before, Thriller is a marathon and not a sprint. The second crucial sighting from that Sunday evening came from a 16-year-old youth who'd between 9.30 and 9.40pm that evening been cycling home from spending the evening at a friend's house and had cycled through the station as part of that journey. Passing through, he intercepted a man who was loitering between the then-closed and unmanned ticket office and the cycle shed where Anne had left her bicycle. A short man, dressed in dark clothing. Now in that kind of way, when someone makes up an immediate shamble of bollocks story, thinking on their feet because they've just been caught out in doing something that they shouldn't, sure you know what I mean, when the man saw the youth on his bicycle, he immediately asked him, have you seen anybody with an air gun? Someone's been shooting at pedestrians with an air gun. The youth told him that no, he hadn't, and cycled off, leaving the short man there. The air gun line was much later to be revealed to have a certain degree of truth to it, a genuine example plucked out in a moment of panic to use as an excuse. Now although Lawrence Locke had been very vocal to the scores of newspaper reporters who were camped out at his doorstep, the media was not always so kind, and they soon afterwards began to develop something of a Christopher Jeffries syndrome for want of a better description. Anne's best friend, Leslie Campion, had been staying at the Locks' home to be a shoulder, to give moral support and to assist Lawrence and Edna and the police as best as she could, like you or I would do if it was your best friend concerned, wouldn't you? And the media began to make much of this, to read into this a bit more than they should have, do you know what I mean? It wasn't helped when by the time a week had passed with still no sign of Anne, as police retraced their likely route home, as we've described, feeling helpless, Lawrence himself was doing the very same thing off his own bat, unknown to police, and accompanied by a reporter from the London Evening Standard newspaper. They'd reached the Kent House offices of LWT, walked from here to the station, used the same trains as Anne would for her journey home, and found absolutely nothing. When he arrived back at Brookman's Park after recreating Anne's supposed final journey, Lawrence was met by several police officers and Leslie. Now the fact that she was there led to all sorts of insinuation in the press, so much so that Leslie was forced to return home to quell the ugly rumours that began flying around, courted by media sensationalists out to get whatever angle they could, all to sell newspapers. They chose not to see the compassionate side of a friend helping a friend, and instead deemed to want to hint at some sort of illicit relationship occurring. They can be scum sometimes, the media, can't they? Concerning Lawrence wanting to retrace his wife's supposed journey, now, you can surely understand this action, can't you? For it must be terrible just sitting and waiting in such a situation. You'd want to be doing something or be out looking for yourself, surely. It must be an extremely difficult thing to do, to leave something that's so high stakes to the hands of others, mustn't it? Indeed, Lawrence later explained to the press, I found absolutely nothing. I just wanted to get the feel of what was going on. I've never been on that route before, but travelling it helped me to understand how my wife must have felt sitting on a lonely platform at night. I didn't find anything, 
All I got was a feeling of what it must have been like. When asked rather bluntly if he believed that his wife was still alive, Lawrence replied, There have been no sightings, none of her personal possessions have been found, nor is there anything to say she is dead or alive. All I know is that she was alive at 8.15pm on that Sunday. I have no indication that she is other than alive today. Until there is something to say otherwise, I have to believe she is alive somewhere. People must know about this case by now, but no one has come forward with any real help. The police have had lots and lots of phone calls that have so far led nowhere, but all it takes is one call. As we've said, Lawrence was to speak lots to the press, he made no effort to hide himself away, and despite whatever insinuations were published in the newspapers, he had in fact by that time been completely ruled out of the inquiry as a suspect. Of course, being the primary person of interest from the initial stages of Operation Swallow, as the Hunt Fran was codenamed, he'd been interviewed under caution almost immediately by Detective Inspector Paul Dockley. His house, garden, work premises, even several of the chest freezers used to store meat there were all searched and ruled out. His movements for the night Anna disappeared had been scrutinised, and both Stephen and Carol Prentice, the friends that he was sailing with that weekend, had given sworn statements alibying him for the previous Sunday, plus credit card details were obtained that showed him filling up with petrol in Dorset on his return journey home that Sunday evening, shortly before Anne was confirmed as leaving Kent House. Now add to that the fact that he had willingly provided police with a list of all of his previous girlfriends for them to eliminate the possible jealousy angle, including especially his ex-girlfriend, who was referred to only as Big Anne, following suggestions she may have been upset by her ex-boyfriend's marriage and bore some ill will to his new wife, and who was, as with the others on the list, ruled out. Also the fact that his personal life, his friends, his work, everything had been looked into in depth as a matter of routine inquiry and with nothing untoward found, and the unmistakable fact that he was very much deeply in love with his wife of just a month, and it was as clear as day that Lawrence Locke had nothing to do with his wife's disappearance. He even wore the pearl necklace Anne had worn on their wedding day around his wrist, so distraught was he, so clinging to Anne coming home. So he spoke to the press, having nothing to hide at all, and wanting to use them to try and reach out to Anne, battling with his thoughts and refusing to accept even the possibility that she was dead. The transcripts of his words to the press all smack of how genuine they are. But the strain of the situation showed clearly upon him, as Lawrence went through a range of emotions as each day passed. For example, in some press interviews, he seemed bemused by events and said as much out loud, whilst offering out his own theories, saying, she may have been picked up by car outside the studio. Someone must have seen something if she was. It's possible someone later laid a false trail. This thing is getting more and more bizarre every day. The police have staged a reconstruction of Anne's journey from London to Brookman's Park, but I want anyone who travelled on the tube or was walking on the streets near to the television centre to try to remember. Then on other occasions, however, it was clear just how much he was struggling with the gravity of the situation and was perhaps somewhat bitter, as he told reporters. We, and by that I mean the police, have found absolutely nothing. 
All I can do is hope. One moment you think something dreadful must have happened. The next you think she might be locked up in a garage somewhere reading a newspaper. She didn't even need to work. She loved her job, she loved her life and we loved each other. We had a beautiful home and we were happily married. We didn't drink, didn't smoke and we didn't go out for expensive meals. We wanted to have a family. The most important thing we could find to argue about when we went on holiday was which beach we should lie on. It was idyllic. She was always worried about travelling and she would never go anywhere alone. If there were just a couple of guys in the train, she would get out and change carriages. Anne's last words to me were, Goodbye darling, take care and see you soon. I had no reason to doubt her. We hadn't had a row. I wish we had fought. At least it might be an explanation. But Anne wasn't hot-tempered. She wasn't the sort to fly out the door in a mood. I wish I could believe she'd run away. I like to think it's possible that I might see her again. But who knows? He would also on occasion struggle to hide his frustration at some of the questions that he was being asked. For example, threatening to thump anyone who would ask him if he'd killed his wife, pointing out that he had nothing to gain from doing so, no will, no insurance policy or anything like that, and telling the reporter who had asked him that outright, I quote, What a prat, what a prattish question. Piss off, you bloody idiot. I couldn't blame Lawrence for being this way. Imagine being thrust into the limelight, knowing there will be some out there who suspect you, no privacy for your grief or your worry, and all the while, with each minute that passed, that very real fear that your worst nightmare is about to come true inches closer to knocking on the door. Poor bloke, he had my utmost sympathy. And Anne's grandmother did as well, for it was reportedly 11 days before police were even able to speak to her about Anne's disappearance. So distraught was she. As Lawrence was fielding questions from the press then, the story developing almost daily at this point, the search for Anne was continuing at a rapid pace. The area spreading outwards from Brookman's Park Station had been extensively combed, and by the 27th of May, plans were afoot to extend the search area to cover the Brookman's Park Golf Course and its two waterways. At least three open wells and natural drainage shafts had been identified within a square mile of the station, an advisement was being taken from the Imperial College Potholing Society about the risk factor of searching these, and a large open expanse of water in the vicinity, Gobion's Pond, had been targeted for a team of police divers to fingertip search. And it must be remembered that even this far into the investigation, it could still not be ascertained as to whether Anne had even made it as far back as Brookman's Park on that Sunday. That was to change drastically on the 27th of May, nine days after Anne's disappearance. Detective Inspector Paul Dockley, a member of the investigating team who was to play a close role in the case, told years later in an interview with author Simon Farquhar, I decided I was going to go and walk the scene for myself. I'd already done it on my day off, but this time I walked the opposite side of the railway line along a pathway that ran along the other side of the ditch. The search team were combing the grounds with strimmers and scythes, all of them looking down naturally. And as I looked up, there was Anne Locke's address book. As soon as I saw it, 
I realised she was definitely here somewhere. If you look at an aerial map of Brookman's Park, Detective Inspector Dockley had headed southbound from the station and onto a footpath that leads parallel from the station car park and heads down in a relatively straight enough line opposite the path the other side of the railway that ultimately joins Hawkshead Lane, the footpath where 60 yards down it Anne's bicycle had been found. Looking from above then, the path that the inspector was on then curves around to the east and heads towards the village's Blue Bridge Road. And it was just before here, stuck in the branches of a hawthorn tree, that he made his discovery. Now concentrating the search in this area, at 2.30pm, an officer searching the bank of a dry riverbed some 700 yards away that led onto Gobbian's Pond, discovered Anne's abandoned diary just yards off the east side of the bridge on Blue Bridge Road. The same footpath was ultimately to reveal both Anne's empty purse and her London weekend television pass, although of her black handbag there was no sign. It was the first conclusive proof that she had at least made it back as far as Brookman's Park that Sunday evening. Lawrence Locke had to then formally identify the possessions as belonging to his wife, which he of course sadly did, and following this, was quoted in the press as saying, When I first saw them, there was the cold realisation that despite all my hopes, something really dreadful may have happened to Anne. I don't have the feeling she's dead, but I do think she's in trouble. It says a lot that they found the books. I have to admit to myself now, that it doesn't look very good. I don't have any vengeance, I just want the person caught as soon as possible. He then admitted that he couldn't bear to take part in any of the further searches for Anne himself, explaining that it would be pointless, his mind wouldn't be focused upon it, because he wouldn't like to find something, not even wanting to imagine it. Instead, all he could do was maintain a vigil by the telephone and pray for Anne, saying, I just keep thinking of her. Can you imagine what it's like sitting here day after day, knowing that news must come that I dread? I can't endure this agony much longer. I sit there and wait. I go to church to pray for her, but they don't have telephones in churches. No words. Following the discovery of Anne's property then, the search area was widened to extend as far south as Potter's Bar, and an eight-person police diving team began their planned search of the nearby Gobbian's Pond, which was some 500 by 100 yards in area. Now I always imagine this must be a really creepy and eerie thing to have to do. I remember vividly being struck with the thought when I was writing the Ladies of the Lake episodes a few series ago. And this was reinforced further to me with the words of a senior police diver who explained to the press that over an expected two to three days, an eight-person team of divers, working in shifts of an hour at a time, would begin by searching the shallow water at the edges of the pond, then would link up, making their way deeper in, until they'd covered every inch of it. He said, Visibility is zero, and we don't know how deep the lake is. We will have to form a human necklace linked by rope, feeling our way in the dark until we've covered every inch. Not something I'd fancy personally, and imagine if you found something in that darkness. Nah, you're alright. 
By the time the 11th of June had rolled around, Anne Locke had been missing for almost three and a half weeks, and once again the press descended upon Lawrence Locke, somewhat insensitively asking him if this was the hardest day yet of the three weeks, to which Lawrence replied, yes, without a doubt. That day was Anne Locke's 30th birthday, and the car, the black Ford Fiesta she'd set her heart on, was parked on the drive waiting at home for her, undriven. By this time also, as I said earlier, detectives from Operation Swallow had also been down to Guildford, where they were shown around the scene of the Marty Tamboza murder, and were reported as being very worried indeed that their respective cases were connected. As by this time the links to Operations Heart, Lee and Bluebell had been established, the national press were already beginning to speculate that Anne was the latest victim of one of the rapists who'd attacked some 23 women and had already killed twice. But until Anne's body was found, this could not be definitively added to Operation Trinity, the linked inquiry of the aforementioned three. So all police could do was continue to comb the area between Brookman's Park Station and the Hertfordshire Metropolitan Police border and continue sifting through the already received information that the incident room had gathered. And there was a fair bit to it. There were possible sightings of Anne that had to be followed up, no matter how wide of the mark they sounded. Psychics and spiritualists were getting in touch offering their theories, although at the time I believe Hertfordshire detectives were decidedly more scully than Mulder, and considerable time was spent attempting to trace a West Indian male who'd been seen several times in the vicinity of Brookman's Park Station on the Sunday evening that Anne had disappeared. And although police were keen to stress that this man was not a suspect, he was never traced. Finally, by the 3rd of July, it was reported in the Wellen and Hatfield Times that after seven full weeks, equating to some 16,000 hours of searching, police were calling off the search for Anne Locke, having looked high and low for her and finding nothing except her bicycle and the possessions from her handbag. So what did police do? Give up? Read the papers? What do you think? They turned to Crime Watch UK, of course and a reconstruction was sanctioned to appear in the edition airing on July the 11th, the following week. Friends of Anne's helped select an actor to portray her in the reconstruction, selecting a TV-credentialed actor named Joanna Hole, who bore a striking resemblance to the missing woman. Lawrence agreed to be interviewed at home as part of the appeal, which you heard before, and over two days of filming, the Crime Watch team created a reconstruction highlighting everything that was known about Anne's final movements, ready to air the following week. It included Anne leaving work and her prospective route home, the discovery of her bicycle, and both the sightings at the station of the night before she disappeared, the mystery of the moved bench and the man who had approached the group asking when the last train was, and the sighting by the cyclist who had apprehended the dodgy-looking fella who came out with some wild story about someone shooting at pedestrians with an air gun about 30 minutes before Anne's likely train had arrived in. Now the Crime Watch appeal, and a link to the episode will be in the episode show notes, The Beauty of YouTube, eh? Describes this man as being, I quote, 35 to 40, 5 foot 6 inches tall, of medium build, receding collar length dark brown hair, wearing a bomber jacket and dark jeans or trousers. But, as you'll come to see as the tale progresses, 
This description, apart from the clothing, was miles off target. Strangely, I thought also, no mention was made of the other person seen stood on the footbridge at roughly the same time. The description I mentioned before, that I personally think is bang on myself, but we shall get to that at a later time. The Crime Watch appeal ends with Nick Ross addressing the elephant in the room and asking Paul Dockley that due to the amount of time Anne had been missing, some seven weeks by that point, was she still likely to be alive? Detective Inspector Dockley's answer was, I quote, We're obviously very concerned for her safety and we do fear that she may have come by her death. What else could you say to a question like that? It by that point, some seven weeks in, can't be a case of giving up hope. And although it's not the answer that Anne's friends, her family, or especially Lawrence wanted to hear, it had surely crossed the minds of each of them, a feeling which must have grown more and more with each passing day. It was police being honest, this statement was, and by that time also, sadly realistic. Now the Crime Watch appeal did generate some 150 plus calls, including possible sightings of Anne on her journey back to Brookman's Park, and several people suggesting that they knew where some of Anne's clothing may be. There were also two possible sightings of a distinct black zip-up handbag abandoned, and an anonymous caller rang to say that he could give a location for an item of Anne's property, her ski jacket, which he'd spotted in Hertfordshire. However, he rang off before giving further details, prompting police to appeal in the press the following day. Get in touch with us again. Your call will be treated in the strictest confidence, and if necessary, someone from the incident room will meet you personally at a location of your choice. The caller never did get back in touch. Now all of these potential lines of inquiry were followed up, and while some of the sightings could be ruled out, some couldn't. But even if they were sightings of Anne on her journey, it ultimately didn't help move the investigation on in any way, and police were forced back to the conclusion that the inquiry had not been moved any further, it hadn't resulted in them finding Anne, and they were forced back to the suspicion that with so much time now passed and not a trace, not a word, Anne Locke, a bride of just four weeks, was most likely now dead. A suspicion that became a realism at 3pm on the afternoon of Monday the 21st of July 1986, nine weeks after she disappeared. Rail track workers cleaning the drains by the western side of the railway track, about a thousand yards down the track from Brookman's Park Station, were alerted by an overpowering, unmistakable smell coming from trackside thick undergrowth. The smell of something badly decomposing. Tentatively approaching the source of this, one look was enough for them to head off to the nearest telephone and get police there right away. Sadly, the missing bride had been found. Now there are only scant details that can be ascertained as to how Anne Locke was discovered. No mention is made as to whether the, she was found clothed or not, or if not, where her clothing was. What is reported reliably is that the body, having lain in that overgrown spot for most likely two months since the night she disappeared, was very badly decomposed and disfigured, 
facilitated by the hot weather of the summer months of 1986, an animal activity. Indeed, so badly decomposed was it that formal identification had to be made from dental records. The scene was catalogued and photographed before the body was removed, then vegetation was cleared for some 500 yards either side of where Anne's remains had lain, and all items found as a result of this, empty cans and bottles etc, were retained and removed for forensic examination. One item of extreme interest found very near to the body was a yellow-handled Stanley knife. Meanwhile, a post-mortem carried out by Professor David Bowen, the head of forensic medicine at London's Charing Cross Hospital, could reveal no evidence of any sexual assault or external physical injury to Anne, who remains being too badly decomposed, but revealed that the cause of death had been most likely due to asphyxia suffocation due to gagging, evidenced by one of Anne's foot-long socks that had been forced into her mouth and down her throat. The other sock was tied across her lower jawbone, chillingly suggested by Professor Bowen in order to force her mouth open to facilitate this gag. Anne had also had her hands tied behind her back in the now all-too-familiar fashion, and once again, there had been an attempt to burn the body. Stuff of nightmares indeed, eh? At the inquest held in Watford and opened on the 24th of July 1986, Coroner Dr Arnold Mendoza held with Dr Bowen's findings and ruled Anne's cause of death to be unlawful killing due to gagging. So with Anne sadly found, the Operation Trinity team now had little hesitation in linking her murder to the catalogue of crime they were investigating. Indeed, by the day after Anne's body was discovered, it was as good as official, as Detective Superintendent Charles Farquhar was quoted as saying, There is no doubt that the same psychopath has murdered these three girls. A psychopath doesn't give up until he's caught. He just goes on believing that he can never be caught. I believe that his mission when he attacked Mrs Locke was to sexually assault her. He's a man who knows the railway network very well and he always has a scout around the area to survey the scene before attacking somebody. Somebody somewhere knows who he is, and I am making an appeal for that person to come forward. At this point, when all cases were officially linked, the Operation Swallow incident room was moved from Welling Garden City to Hendon, and Detective Superintendent Ken Worker, who is the SIO of Operation Heart, now took charge of Operation Swallow also. And news of the tragic bride being found seemed to stir up the public and generate a whole lot of new information coming into the incident room, although not all of it useful or even genuine, as Ken Worker was to explain to a documentary two years later, on which you can hear coming up. When Anne Locke's body was found, it was decided that this was our man. He had struck again. What little evidence pointed strongly to this fact? This meant that the incident room that I was running had to take over the Hertfordshire Police investigation and we had to reinvestigate the whole matter from scratch. We had an awful lot of information come into uh, the inquiry office and uh, a lot of it was anonymous, uh, but all inquiries had to be followed up. And of course we had some people wanting to confess to the murders. In point of fact, 
uh, we had one chap ring up and said that his son had confessed to him that he had, in point of fact, thrown Anlock off of the train. Well, we knew at that stage, really, that uh, that didn't occur because from the position of her body, there was no way that she was thrown off of the train. But, of course, like all of these inquiries, we had to follow it up. This meant myself travelling down to the West Country and uh, interviewing the man down there. And it would appear, basically, that the father really wanted to get the son out of his house. And the story about the confession was just not true. Some people like, I hope the guy got done for that, I really do. What an absolutely callous thing to do that is, isn't it? Now what police did not realise at this time is that they were just weeks away from an arrest thanks to a groundbreaking new investigative tool that was to leap suspect number 1594 on Operation Heart's list of Z-men right to the very top of that pile. They were also not to realise that the very same man had been arrested once again in very suspicious circumstances and bailed once again just six days before Anne Locke had received that telephone call asking her to go into work to help out. But as I've said before, Thriller is a marathon, not a sprint, and we shall get to that next time around, trust me. Now it was to be many years before the fate that Anne Locke met that Sunday evening in 1986 was known, and indeed, even today, there are some aspects to it that aren't, and most likely never will be. But what did happen can be best presented as follows. Earlier that Sunday, the 18th of May, the shorter man had spent a part of the afternoon attending a martial arts class near to his home in Kilburn, North London, a favoured pastime of his, and when he returned home, found a familiar red Talbot Horizon car parked outside, an occupant in the driver's seat. An occupant taller than him. No words needed to be spoken between the two really, being able to read each other's minds almost, and knowing why he was there, they both went inside his flat, the shorter man changing into a dark jacket and trousers. Ensuring that he grabbed one of the several fearsome looking knives that he had about the flat, a balaclava and a box of matches stuffed with tissues, they left and headed off in the taller man's car, at first to his home where he too changed into dark clothing, armed himself in the same way with knife and paraphernalia, then both headed back out and set off in the vehicle. Their destination? The village station of Brookman's Park, some 19 miles north in Hertfordshire. On the way there, the taller man told the shorter that he'd found yet another good place for hunting, exciting him by describing their prospective victim in mind, the woman with the white bag that the taller man had seen there on a couple of occasions before, alighting the train of an evening. Arriving there in the early evening, the pair parked up near a cluster of shops nearby, most likely being the parade of shops that is on station close, on the approach to the station, so the car would not stand out amongst others. Then they began to prowl, either on foot or possibly beforehand in the vehicle, they sussed out a separate way each could make it back to the car, before making their way down the footpath on the west side of the railway line that leads to some woods before it meets Hawkshead Lane. They loitered around here for a while, avoiding dog walkers and possibly looking for a potential victim here, 
before after an hour or two making their way back towards the station. By this point the station was deserted, the ticket office clerk having caught the previous train heading back towards Finsbury Park, and the only light there came from the bicycle shed before the automatic station lighting came on at 9pm. Heading over to the bicycle shed, the pair saw only one bicycle there, a red Londoner type complete with basket on the front, and they grinned at each other, for it was clearly a lady's bicycle, and someone was going to come back for it, the someone they hoped being the woman with the white bag. So they decided to take it and hide it nearby, the evil thinking being that the owner would arrive back on the train, find the bike missing and look about the station premises for it, thus giving them chance to grab her. Once they'd done this, placing the still-locked bike some 50 to 60 yards down the footpath, in their practice manner, the pair then split up and waited, the taller man taking his place on the footbridge, thus blocking off either exit for their intended victim. The shorter man, meanwhile, was loitering by the ticket office and the bicycle shed, where he was suddenly seen by a youth cycling through the station, and somewhat flustered, but thinking on his feet, immediately tried to be assertive and asked the youth the first thing that came into his head, the story about the air gun being fired at pedestrians. It had come to the forefront of his mind immediately, because it was a pastime that he and his taller companion had indulged in doing since they were youngsters, and one that they reportedly still maintained doing, even now being young men. Just after 10pm, long after the youth had cycled off, a train pulled in and a lone female passenger got off onto the platform. But it wasn't their intended victim, that lady has never been identified, most likely not knowing to this day that she was once a target for murder. It was instead, bride of just four weeks, Anne Locke. Now to the taller and the shorter man, they didn't really care who it was. If it wasn't their intended victim, then so what? Human life meant so very little to them that she will do, remember? Unseen by Anne, the shorter man ran some distance along the pathway to ensure that the coast was clear and then joined his taller friend, where they swiftly followed Anne to the bicycle shed. The split second of confusion for her, registering that her bicycle was not where she'd locked it some hours earlier, was all that the two predators needed to strike, and with a knife each to her side, they ensured through instant fear that the short scream she'd let out when grabbed, the one that was heard by Grant and Tim a minute or two after 10pm, was the only one she would be making. Walking either side of her, they then swiftly marched her southwards down the west trackside footpath away from the station, further and further away from any possible good Samaritan who may come to her aid. They marched the terrified woman for almost a mile down this path. They were even to cross the road at Hawkshead Lane, and then led Anne through a small wood just past here, and over a fence into a field. Now one can only try and imagine the extreme terror that must have been going through Anne's mind by that time, for she must have known that by then, this is no simple mugging, it's no robbery. I say try, for you can't really, and honestly, I wouldn't want anybody to. But we've already learned in the story arc to date, that part of this pair's enjoyment was the inflicting of cruelty. It was more than just the act of raping someone for their sexual gratification, 
It was the powerful feeling it left them with, having a helpless victim, seeing the terror they could inflict through threats and coercion. And for one other pair at least, the taller man, the sexual act had long since plateaued for him. It was the godlike feeling he described that he got from violence towards a victim, but cruelty. That had become his drug. Here, forcing Anne to remove her clothing, the shorter man then pushed her to the ground and raped her, while the taller man kept watch. But this time, they did not switch places immediately as they had so many times before. Instead, this time, the taller man threw the car keys to the shorter one and told him to go and fetch the car, adding as an almost throwaway comment, Take your time, eh? Picking up Anne's handbag, the shorter man set off back the way they'd come, but at some point crossing the railway line and making his way through a field just the other side of Hawkshead Lane, at the top of which was the footpath that led onto Blue Bridge Road. Whilst making his way along here, taking a looping route back to where they'd parked the vehicle, the shorter man rifled through the handbag, discarding items as he fled. The address book that found its way into a hedge, a diary thrown onto a dried stream bed the other side of Bluebridge Road, the pass and the purse. Finally reaching the car, the shorter man then waited for his taller friend, and waited and waited. Some twenty minutes later, the taller man came running into view from the direction of the footpath in what was later described as on a high and buzzing. In a high state of excitement, jubilant, properly wired, as the taller man got into the driver's seat and they drove off back towards the North London area where both lived, when his shorter friend voiced his concerns about the risk of the woman they just attacked recognising or identifying them, his taller friend said, with a grin on his face, Don't worry about it, she won't be saying anything. Then horrifically, he even told his shorter friend, Keep your eyes open for another one. What depth of evil do people like this crawl from, eh? Unreal, that, isn't it? What exactly happened in the final moments of Anne Locke's life are not known. As I said before, they may never, indeed, will likely never be known. But remember how her remains were found. Asphyxia due to a gag forced down her throat. Another improvised one found tied around her lower jaw, possibly to hold her mouth open. Her hands fastened behind her back in the praying position, a Stanley knife abandoned nearby. Because Anne's body was so badly decomposed, it was impossible to determine any external injuries to her. But think about this. The taller man had a taste, a bent for inflicting violence, pain and terror. It excited him and aroused him more than anything. In a quiet place where he must have spent at least 20 minutes alone with Anne, I don't even wish to try and think about things that he did. But this one, I wouldn't put anything past him. So by this time, Taller and Shorter had gone from being, at the time, Britain's known most prolific rapists, to triple killers, and the subjects of the biggest police manhunt since the search for Peter Sutcliffe. But it was a partnership that was soon to end, and the wheels that arguably set this in motion? Simply a man who some weeks previously had sat reading a newspaper on a train. And which we shall find out about in the fifth part of Thriller, 
because that has very neatly come to a perfect point to end the tale for the time being. I told you it was a hell of a story this one. It's going to surpass Maniac, I'm pretty sure, at least in length anyway. And personally, the bag full of books that I have seen to cart with me everywhere of late will be put away on the shelves and not looked at for a bloody hell of a long time following the completion of Thriller, I promise you. It's a disturbing and horrendous tale to research and write up this one. Well, all of the tales that I bring to the show are like that really. But this one, I'm struck with just how many lives were changed forever by the actions of this pit. And I have a special empathy for people that I've come to learn about through researching the tale. Lawrence Locke, Kenneth and Barbara Day, Paul Tidyman, and so many women. Their sentences have stayed with me too. And it's because of these people, many of whom, as I've just said, do still live with these actions today that I am totally committed to doing the tale as much justice as I can. And of course, none of these are forgotten never to be mentioned again in the tale, as I did with Maniac last year. We shall touch back with those mentioned and affected at the arc's end. It's the only way to finish it that I'll be happy with. So I can't say I hope that it's a tale that you're enjoying, that's the wrong way to describe it, but I do hope that it is a tale you're finding interesting and informative if you don't know of it, though I'm sure many of you do, and personally, if it was me, I would have bloody well googled it myself by now. Overall though, it's a tale I hope you never forget, and certainly names that you never do. Alison, Martia, and now Anne. With that I shall wrap up here now because these things don't write themselves and continue with Thriller to bring you the next part, look out for it very soon, or next depending on when you're hearing this of course. I thank you very kindly for joining me here today and all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you folks all good and safe times and I shall catch you very soon. Take care all, best wishes and goodbye for now.